Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Kevin, how are you? You you went down to Canmore this week. We did, yeah. Sean and I snuck away for a few nights and went down, and uh, the weather was fantastic. You never know in Canmore, Banff area, and we had some beautiful weather, did some hiking, and hit a few golf balls, and it was great. And uh, this week down there, I understand they could have up to 40 centimeters of snow. So, Jimmy, I think we, I think we picked the right week. Warren, get, get your ass back here, Warren, Alberta, where you can appreciate some snow in the middle of June. How are you doing, Warren? I'm just fine, Jim. And no, there won't be uh, 40 centimeters of snow out of here for a long time. Maybe two years. Kevin, you hit some balls. I went, I'll tell you how bad I am. I went to hit some golf balls. I couldn't get it in the air. I've played golf for 50 years. Okay, I was shanking, hooking, whiffing. And there was a guy beside me with his wife, obviously retired, and he couldn't hit it 50 feet. I was so bad, I heard his wife whisper to him, Honey, go help that man over there. <laughs> That's how bad I was. You know, let's forget about the golf. Let's talk some curling. Fellas, coming up. Last rock. Eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here, guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, boys, here's what's on the show this week. The World Curling Federation announced a number of new inductees into the World Curling Hall of Fame. Uh, we got some news out of Curling Canada. The board chair has resigned, and there's a new chair coming in. And this past week, there was a lot of news and sports uh, focused on the tennis player, Naomi Osaka, and her refusal to talk to the media. Uh, and we want to talk about that. And Abby DeShane is our guest from Sudbury, my hometown. And uh, Abby is part of a new formed committee uh, about junior curling. She's very active, a uh, lovely young girl. And uh, at a young age, she's only 20, uh, has devoted all her time to uh, improving the sport of curling at the junior age. So we're going to talk to her. Uh, also, Inside Curling, if you want to email us, you can do it insidecurling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Curling Inside, Facebook at Inside Curling, and we're on Instagram as well. Thanks, everyone, for all your emails. Uh, so, Warren, let's talk about the World Curling Federation and their announcement that five curlers and a builder have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Sweden's Team Norberg, Canadian curler Bernie Sparks, uh, as a builder, and Johannes Arthur Jensen of Denmark. Uh, Warren, you would know all about these people. 
Well, I know something about them, Jim. Certainly the, the Norberg team, and Kevin would remember Annette Norberg very well because uh, along with him, she won the gold medal at the Olympics in Vancouver in 2010. But an outstanding record the team that she skipped for many years has with Eva Lund at third, Catherine Lindell at second, and Anna-Marie Savard at lead. Over a period of between 2003 and 2010, they won a lot of gold medals. They won the European Championship in 2003, 4, and 5 and again in 2007. In 2005 in Paisley, Scotland, they won their first World Women's Championship, and they took another one again in 2006. Then as well in 2006, they went into Turin, Italy, and they took the gold medal in the Olympics there, and of course back into Canada in 2010 and uh, taking the gold medal in Vancouver. So an outstanding record for that team, and all four have been inducted into the World Curling Hall of Fame, which is very deserving. A curler that's sort of from the past to a very large degree, but was uh, outstanding in his day, Bernie Sparks, has also been included into the World Curling Hall of Fame. Bernie's big accomplishment came in Alberta back in the 60s when he played second for Ron Northcat, and that team had an outstanding record between 1966 and 1969. They represented Alberta at the Briar four times. They won the Briar three times in 68, 66, and 69. And they won the world championship three times. So Bernie goes in with his skip, Ron Northcott, who was inducted a couple of years ago as a, a, a member of the Hall of Fame for that accomplishment. He was also the all-star lead in the Briar all four times in 66 to 1969. Bernie then moved to BC in 1971 and skipped a number of teams. I think eight provincial championship wins on behalf of British Columbia to the Briar. Didn't win it again. Came very close. Lost in the final in 1987 to Russ, Fo- Russ Howard. But Bernie was the first player as well to earn 12 Purple Hearts, which that's been surpassed, but uh, he held the record for quite some time. So another great player. And out of Denmark, a builder, Jonas Jensen. And if anyone from Canada has ever been to Denmark, they've been to the Tarnby Curling Club. And Jonas was the guy who virtually got that thing rolling and, and made it the club it is. It's the heart of curling in Denmark. And uh, he's the guy that uh, brought it up and running and still continues to work with it today. I think he's been the president since 1987. And he's been inducted as a builder. So I think uh, some good choices. I guess maybe I'm prejudiced because I'm on the World Curling Hall of Fame Selection Committee. But I think uh, we discussed uh, a lot of people and I think we felt that these people were all very deserving. There's always a bunch of debate, Warren, when it comes to selections into Hall of Fame. You know, um, it's not always the debate about whether that guy should have got in or not. You know, he deserves it. But sometimes there's talk about people who get in that shouldn't be there. And then a bunch of debate about what should be the minimum requirements. Are, are there minimum requirements, Warren? Well, let's clarify. There's the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame and there's the World Curling Hall of Fame. So they're two very different entities. Uh, I mentioned, I said, in Selection Committee of the World Curling Hall of Fame. I think in the last couple of years, we've spent a lot of time at defining the criteria of what uh, should put a person into the Hall of Fame. It's not hardcore held down to that you have to do this, but there are very definite guidelines I think we have now. There have been similar ones in Canada, but... To some degree, they have been, I think, maybe abused over time in the fact that it isn't as clear-cut, I think, as it now is at the world level. So halls of fame are a very difficult thing. I think one of the things that we look at is the selection committee to try to go as far back as you can in the history of the sport to ensure that no one has been left out that should be in. And then you move up from there. And in any given year, you possibly induct someone who has maybe been overlooked, but you also probably induct someone that's from a newer generation or newer time. So... It requires a lot of discussion. Uh, I think you have to have good committees uh, that are making these selections that are uh, 
I think, independent in her thought and as well uh, has some history with the sport. And I think at the World Curling Federation right now, we have a, a good committee in place. Uh, I'm not so sure at the Canadian level if they've got the same thing because it pretty much rests with the Board of Directors of Curling Canada, as far as I know. I thought that Annette Norberg was already in the Hall of Fame. So can you get in twice? Like how do I, I don't know, I just don't know how it works. Um, but it seems to me that if you're an athlete, you're an athlete, you should probably only get in once. Uh, no, Annette Berg, Norberg is not, uh, this is her first induction. Uh, it was discussed a couple of times and, and it didn't happen. But I think going forward, certainly at the world level, I think the game plan is when you induct a skip, if there's members of their teams that they played with that have the identical same record, that it would make sense that you would induct them all at the same time. And uh, if, in fact, you've got that situation, but you've got a player or a skip on the team who has gone on and had further accomplishments above and beyond what that team did manage to do, then you might consider putting that person in as an individual as well. Glenn Howard's a good example. So he won two world championships with Russ, and that team, I think, is inducted going back to 1993. But Glenn came back and won two world championships as a skip himself. So that would very much... uh, justify putting Glenn in as well as an individual for that accomplishment. So it's, again, difficult to balance, but those are kind of the type of things that are looked at. You know, in my opinion, it's super important that nobody goes in any Hall of Fame as a team or an individual until they're for sure going to be retired. Um, Because in Glenn's case, he was in the Hall, but then he kept curling and winning other stuff. And it just, it muddies the water so bad. And that's, so hopefully that's, I think, something that you guys, you know, make sure of that, you don't have somebody that, you know, is fairly young, you induct them, and then they keep playing and winning more stuff, which is great, but they shouldn't be in the hall until they retire, in, in my opinion. In both the World and the Canadian Halls of Fame, I believe the age right now is 55 before anyone can be considered. And, of course, that still leaves a, a bit of an open end because a person can go on and win five senior championships, which... Uh, is not the same as winning uh, a men's or women's title or a mixed doubles title, but it still holds some, some significance when it comes to considering Hall of Fame induction. So it's a difficult situation, but I think right now, at least in both of those uh, Halls of Fame, I think 55 is the minimum age that someone can be inducted. How big is the selection committee warrant and who's on it? At the World Curling Federation level, we have five people on the selection committee, and uh, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say the people that are on it, but I can suggest to you right now, uh, all five people on that committee are former Hall of Fame, are Hall of Fame members themselves, which I think is also really important that on any selection committee, you've got to have, uh, if you've got five people on that committee, I think three of them need to be people who are in the Hall of Fame, who certainly have a greater, I think, uh, feeling about making sure that you're inducting the right people than uh, it might happen if it's someone that's got, uh, from a political side of the equation that's making the decision. Warren, Curling Canada made an announcement this week. The chair has left, has resigned, and uh, what do we know about that? We don't know much. The uh, chair, Mitch Mitchkin from uh, Swift Current, resigned this past week, giving reasons as personal. So we're not sure what has happened there. Kind of interesting with uh, only about three, four months left in his term that he would step back uh, for any reason, unless it was really serious. Um, Interesting enough, their CFO, Bill Merklinger, departed about a month ago too, and again, with nothing really being said as to why he was gone. So some changes there. The new board chair is Amy Nixon, who is familiar to certainly people in the uh, competitive curling world and the fact that she played third for Shannon Clybrink for many years and they won the bronze medal in the Olympics at a turn in Italy in 2006. So 
We now have a curler at the helm of Curling Canada, so it should be interesting to see how that all shakes down. Uh, Kevin, if you were going to um, speak to the new board chair and and suggest what they need to work on, what what would be the priorities you would you would tell them? Yeah, you know, isn't this something when, uh, you know, as a business person, if you ever hear of a company where the CFO, which means the person in charge of the purse, and the chairman of the board both jump off the ship within a month, um, that brings red flags to a business guy. Like, wait a minute here, hang on. Like, I know there's no explanation as to why they both left. And that would be, I think, probably a good idea. If I could advise the next chair, I would certainly clarify the reason for the two departures, because you're talking about the person in charge of the money and the chairman of the board. Those are two very important positions and within a month to, to bail, I don't know why, but I think that's something that would be certainly front and center is for credibility of your organization. Those are some pretty big exits. That's concerning to me as a curler and a person that loves the sport when your national body loses two people of that stature uh, within a month or so or two months. Um, that is something that uh, I would like to know. And I, I don't think I'm alone. I'd like to hear from everybody on our uh, Facebook group as to what they think. But uh, it's certainly uh, worrisome for me. Um, the other side, of course, when it comes to uh, uh, to what the, the chair would worry about is certainly curling's growth in the, in the young person in, uh, in Canada. That's something that has to be front and center, in, in my opinion. Warren, you seem to be uh, super positive that uh, it's, a, it's a curler who's going to be at the head of the organization now? Well, over time, there hasn't been too many curlers. There's been a couple in history that have been the chairman of the board of the Canadian Curling Association. But I think certainly a, a player in that position sees things from a different perspective, and it should be very interesting. Amy's a, a firecracker, and uh, very interesting to see uh, what uh, comes from her. I, I'm assuming the fact that she has stepped in on the interim basis until their AGM at the end of September, that she's probably going to run to be chair of the board again next year. And I would assume that they have elected her now, they will elect her again. So she's going to be there for a period of time that's going to be a little longer than most of their chairs. This is another interesting thing with the organization I worked for for all these years. You know, back in the old days, it was fine for a person to be chairman of the board for one year because it was a different world. I mean, you know, you, know, you had budgets of two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars thirty years ago. Now it's uh, twenty three, twenty four million. And for a chair to really be effective in the role, I think they need to be there at least two years, and probably to to have a term that could be up to five years. And for for just one year, I mean, before they can really get started, it's it's almost over. So I would hope that at some point in time they would reconsider that position and uh, look at changing that. I mean, the World Curling Federation used to operate in the same way, and now their chair can be there up for 10 years. Uh, and Kate Katniss has been the chair of that board. She will be finished in September of 2022, and there will be a new chair elected at that point in time, or in their case, president. But uh, she will have been there 10 years, which I think for a chair to be effective in what they're doing, they need to be more, more than one year. This is one of the great stories in sports, I, I believe, uh, what broke last week. Naomi Osaka is... Uh, you know, I think she's ranked number two. Uh, what happened is she had she's had a couple of bad experiences with the press. She got a little uh, antsy about some questions they asked. And then when she came to the French Open and won her first round, you are obligated to do press conferences. It's like that in hockey. It's like that in many sports. And it's certainly like that in tennis. And she refused to do her post-match press conference. Um, she said it was because of stress, that she suffers from anxiety, stress, 
mental uh, illness uh, that she's been dealing with and said she can't take it anymore. So she's not doing the press conference. So the organization finds her 15 grand um, and then warns her that if you don't start to show up for your press conference, there's going to be more money. And if you don't do that, if that's not enough to make you do it, you could be kicked out of the tournament. And what happens the following day after the organization says all this, she wakes up and says, you know what? I'm pulling out of the tournament and said, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Okay. Uh, for the reasons of mental illness. And she also said it would be a distraction to other players. Warren, you've got lots to say about this on whether athletes, particularly curlers, what their obligation is to the sport. I look at it this way. In any of these major events, there's probably, there's five parties that are in the dance and it's the event, the owners, the organizers of whatever event it is, the athletes, the media, the sponsors, and the fans. And of those five entities, each one needs the other. And without them all pulling together and sort of in the same direction in the guidelines and rules that have been laid down for them, you'll get a crack in the pavement and you begin to have things uh, leak away on you or get away on you. So there's got to be an understanding with all these people involved as to what the rules of engagement are. And I understand that she's got some issues right now. I, I'm not sure what they are, how serious they are. But again, I think when you step into a field of competition, if you've got some issues with uh, depression, which I think is what she suggests, that's the last place I think you should be. Because if you go into a tough game and lose, and Kevin can certainly uh, comment on that, you're, you're, you're subject to some depression of some degree. And depending upon what your mental state is, it could be pretty bad. I understand as well dealing with the media sometimes be difficult, uh, particularly if there's an individual who decides to hone in on, on you. But uh, you go through media training, you go through all the ways of having to deal with those issues. And when you come up to the stage level that she's at, you've been there many times, you know what you've got to do, you know how to do it. And so if anybody starts to break out of that shell or realm of those five entities, you're going to begin to have some issues. So if one athlete can do what she's done, why can't another? And as soon as that starts to happen, you've now got pressure coming from the fans and from the sponsors probably is the big one. She's also got sponsors and those sponsors that are part of her expect her as well to be in front of the media. So I'm not sure what went on there. I'm not sure how her handlers dealt with this whole thing or if they dealt with it properly. But uh, I'm very surprised it went to the extent that it did, that it wasn't even something that was put on the table before the event started. If she had this concern, she should have gone to them before it started and say, Here, here's my issue. At that point in time, they're either prepared to let her perform under those conditions to say, no, we simply can't do that. So interesting. Maybe it was a publicity stunt to some degree. She's received more attention out of this than she would have uh, if she had won three major championships. So I don't know, except I do know that you've got to have the the athletes involved in the competitions have to deal with the media, and I don't think you can start making exceptions. Aren't you worried, Warren, that maybe that genuinely is, is mental illness, uh, and, and that's why she stepped away? Don't we have to respect that? Then I think she made the right decision by stepping away if, if she's got those type of issues. And I think once you step into that ring to be involved in the competition, if you've got anything of this nature, you should step away. And And when you're better, you're fixed, you're able to deal with issues, then you come back. Uh, that's what you do if you have a physical injury. And I'm sure many athletes have done that before. If they're not feeling right mentally, they just step back for a while. And uh, they don't participate until they start to get things straightened around. I think this was totally expected. 
not not because of Osaka in, individually, but just sports in general. Because the the word media, it used to be like so when we were playing, the way to get our brand out back when I was curling, and that's only, you know, it hasn't been a thousand years. Like we competed at the 2010 Olympics, 2010, that's not that long ago. I didn't retire till 2014, but the way, even way back then, um, was to get on media shows, get in the scrums, have the press conferences, get on city tv the breakfast television we did uh, there was five of them across canada we did them at least once each every year and get on all these different shows because that was a way to build your brand well it's not the case anymore the way to build your brand is to get your social media following not traditional media naomi osaka i believe has over a million twitter followers let alone all the other platforms so when you're talking about an event or your team or your sponsors uh getting word out I'm not sure traditional media matters to these players any longer. Um, it's social media. It's having 39,000 retweets to your tweet when you're reaching a million. That means you're going to reach tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people in a quarter second. That's building your brand. But that was never available to us back in the day. So now you look at an athlete, and she actually, yeah, she had the, uh, uh, the highest earnings for a female athlete in the history of time in 2020 at $37.4 million between May of 2019 and May of 2020. So a, a great degree of money um, that she has earned, which is fantastic, uh, I think. I, I expected this to happen at some point. I just don't know if this is how it was supposed to happen or not. You know, I, hopefully she's okay with, with the mental illness part um, and, and able to come back and compete. But... You know, it makes me wonder a little bit more about the press conferences. When it comes to t uh, the televised event, be it on Sportsnet or NBC or CBS or ABC or you name the channel, it doesn't matter. And mid-game, I think it's really important that your on-field um, interviewer has the opportunity to interview the coach or the player or whoever they want. At the end of the game, you need to have them on the field of play talking about their win or their loss or their big shot, you know, their big serve in the in the third set whatever the case may be they want to talk about that's really important that had to occur the press conference you know i've wondered about this the last couple of years when i watch you know somebody like well my favorite right now mcdavid you know after they lose and he's sitting up there going i want to be anywhere else in this entire world but here being grilled the same question five thousand times in five thousand different ways and it's funny, you know, so I, I brought it up to my daughter who's 20 and she's a, you know, she plays in Buffalo with softball. So she's really tapped into the sports world. She's a sports fanatic. And I, I asked her last night before we we're coming on to talk about this today. I said, you know, you have a press conference. What do you mean by a press conference, dad? Well, you mean when, like when you're on the ice and you ask the winner of the tournament a question? I said, no, that's part of the show. That's different. When the lights go out at the end of the show, the athletes go into the back and there'll be about 40 media people asking them questions at a table. She said, well, who's going to watch that? What do you mean? Like, all I get is snippets of things. That's all I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch the highlights. Well, no, I said it would be on like a, like on, on cable, like you tune into a sports show and, and, and watch the interview. Well, first of all, dad, nobody has cable anymore. <laughs> and I start laughing. I go, you know, the, the way Warren looks at it, like Warren explained himself really well. And that's, the, that's an older school way of looking at it. And then I kind of look in the middle, thinking that me, the, the tr traditional media is still important at these press conferences. And then you ask a younger person, he goes, cable? 
cable. I don't, have, I, don't, I don't even know a person that has cable. Like, all I'm going to have is my Twitter feed. And if something comes over it, I'll read it. And I'll look at the highlights and, and maybe on Instagram. And, you know, I'll follow uh, Osaka's uh, Twitter feed and her Instagram. And I'll follow everything she does. So I think it's just kind of a changing of the world in sport. I don't look at this as a negative or a positive. I just look at it as uh, something that was bound to happen. Um, the athletes, I imagine that all the players associations in all the major sports are looking at this seriously right now, figuring out, okay, oh boy, what are we going to do about this? And that's what I think is happening, is that it's not just a one-off. This is not a one-off that Osaka decided not to do the media and, and, and had the big backlash, brought it to the attention. You know, she did walk away from the tournament, which was unfortunate because I, I enjoy watching her. Um, but hopefully she can come back for the next major and play. But I think there's a bigger discussion that's going to have to happen between the events and the organizing groups, the old guard and the players association, the young guard, and what happens with traditional media going forward at these events. Because social media has become far more uh, powerful when it comes to building your brand from the athlete's point of view. It's an interesting thing, Jimmy. I think it's really fascinating and it'll be really fun to watch, not just tennis, but the pro sports all over the place and how they, how they deal with the situation. I could really give a damn if they don't have press conferences. You don't get much out of them. They're, they're kind of vanilla. Uh, as Warren points out, they're kind of media trained and everyone's freaking out about this. And I say, well, what would we really lose uh, as a spectator if we didn't see a press conference? Nothing. But to your point, Warren, if you're Nike and you're not doing that press conference and they look up and go, hey, 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 get your hat on TV, that could be a big problem. It's not just traditional media. I mean, all the people that are operating social media platforms, that's where they get their quotes or whatever it is they're going to say. And many of them aren't present in those rooms anymore, particularly with covid they're there on, uh, on, on the virtual uh, approach to life. They're on Zoom or whatever the case may be. So they've got to get uh, the players to say something. They've got to have a quote of some kind. They've got to have something to go from. And if you don't have some requirement that uh, these people have to talk to media, they'll just climb up, and they're not going to say anything to anybody. And all of a sudden, the whole world out there that's trying to pump out information, the only information they're going to have any access to is whatever these people decide to put out on their own social media networks. So it's a really, it's a difficult issue that uh, is going to have to be dealt with. And I think, again, everybody has to remember that everybody's part of the dance, the five entities I initially mentioned, and they've all got to figure out how they're going to effectively work together. When it comes to clamming up, though, Warren, that's already happened because, as to your own point, they're taught exactly how to, to talk to the media to say nothing. Um, when we were uh, sponsored um, in, in before the Olympics and after the Olympics in 2010, we actually had to go through media training at least once a year, and that was like a mock situation where you're asked questions and exactly in front of a board of people how you respond, and then because of your response, we would discuss how that response would be different. And we had to do it again and again and again and again and again and again until we got it right as to how to do it so that you didn't say something that wasn't proper so that people couldn't get that negative snippet on media. And so all of these athletes are, 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 are run through media training now. So it's really kind of a, a to your point, a, a bit of a conundrum um, because you do a press conference, but the players, you know, they're taught exactly what to do. 
uh, now. And uh, so you're not getting those big discussions that you used to get years ago. It's kind of an old idea, this press conference thing. It's been going since forever. I think there'd just be a different way of doing it going forward. That's all. You know, if this was the 50th ranked player in the world, no one would care. Uh, but every sport warned, you got to protect your stars. And if I'm tennis, if I'm running, I'm the head of the tennis body, I'm going to let this girl do whatever she wants. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, Jimmy. It's really, really, I'm glad we talked about this because it's, it's really important. And it's just another thing in this, in this world that's changing. It'll be interesting how it all sifts out. This could be a great debate. I think we all come from a different side. And who doesn't like to take on Warren, Kevin? <laughs> Stop it. Uh, let's, get, let's, get, let's get to something better. Young Curlers. Next, our guest. Coming up. You know, the, the sport's all about the young people, Kevin. You've always said that about uh, we got to get to the youth if we're going to grow up. Warren, you've been really uh, on side with that, that the game has to change and we've got to cater to the young people. We've got to get them involved more. And Abby Duchesne is going to be the next ambassador, boy, for, for curling. Abby is from Sudbury, uh, Ontario, where I'm from. So she's got to be good people. There's no doubt about it. You're obviously a competitive curler. When we go down the list, you've done, so, you've done so many things as a junior curler. You're highly competitive. You've been very close to making it to the Nationals. Uh, um, you've, you've been skipped on a team. You've played other positions. You led a boys team in high school. Were you a skip of a boys team in high school? Did I read that right? Yeah. So um, in my last year of high school, I chose to play on the boys' side to help develop our team. So I skipped the boys' side and played with my brother and a few other local curlers. Take us through what you're uh, most interested in. You see some problems with the associations. Well, I think there are some issues at the grassroots and there are some issues at the competitive level. And I think a lot of these vary region to region and are not necessarily all the same from each member association, but I think we can all learn from each other. There are also some issues at the Curling Canada level that I've noticed. So one major concern of mine is so many new initiatives have been brought in by Curling Canada this year for the junior curlers, but I have not met one junior curler who has been excited about the age change to U20. I think that there's a major issue where we're sheltering young curlers in their age category and they're not being challenged enough so that way when they enter women's and men's play, there's such a big drop-off. So now when you reduce the junior age from U21 to U20, there's an even bigger drop-off. When you come out of U18, you only have two years to develop now instead of the three you would have before. And maybe in your first year out of U18, you would be challenged by that team that's in their last year. But now there isn't a big difference between teams that are one year apart in age. Do you see things the same way, Warren? Well, it's kind of a complicated issue that Abby brought up, and it's been uh, an issue for a long time. And I'll go back in, in history as to, we talked about this on the show before, in 1995, things were changed to where they were today. That is, the team that would win the Canadian Junior Championship this year would go to the World Juniors this year. And that was um, not the same prior to 1995, because the World Juniors came into existence after the Canadian. And as a result, the World Juniors were being played in February. The Canadians were in March. So the team had to go a year later because the Canadian finals were in March. In 1995, that was changed, and the Canadian championships were moved into January. So at that point in time, 
the winner of a particular year would go and represent Canada at the world that year. There was complaints from day one from the provincial associations because they felt it had shortened the junior curling year considerably by having to run their playdowns much earlier. And that complaint continued for, <clears throat> I guess, 25 years almost, because finally two years ago, uh, they changed it for those reasons. And in my opinion, it was completely the wrong reasons. Um, they could have come up with, uh, as I've suggested before, maybe a Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship they would go the second half of the season, or for that matter, develop some other events for these people to play in uh, in February and March and even into April. But instead, they went back and changed it back to where it was in 1994. And as a result, I think even a worse thing that's happening is a team now winning the Canadian Junior, and if it had happened this year in 2021, wouldn't have been going until 2022. And as Abby has suggested, because of the move they've had to make, they've had to lower the age from 20 to from 21 to 20, for the Canadian Championship, because the team that wins isn't going to go until a year later, and the world age is 21. So they could possibly be too old if, in fact, the Canadian age was now left at 21. So the whole thing all around, I've been in opinion forever. There was a solution other than the one they have found, and I find in talking to young players like Abby, none of them have agreed with it, but yet it was done and continues to go ahead. But the, the big thing, I guess, is, is how do we grow our athletes? That's what Abby's getting to. And so we get to, to 20 years old, and, and I don't like the year of waiting. I had to do that, actually, after winning the Canadian Junior in 85. But Abby, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, okay, what? how do we bridge the gap from the junior age at 20 or 21 to when you can become a little bit more competitive in curling, say 25, 26, 27 years old? How do we bridge that gap so we don't lose so many young curlers who have to all of a sudden compete with Rachel Holman or, or Jennifer Jones or Carrie Anderson when they're 21 years old and it's just, it's not a fair fight? Yeah, so I think that some of the things that could be done is give young curlers opportunities to play at nationals. So maybe if there was a tier two U21 national for all of those, or provided it went back to U21, we'll call it a junior national for all of those runner-up teams. That way, when the team that usually wins ages out, they've already had that national experience and maybe they're that much better already. I don't think U23 and U25 are the answer because, again, you're sheltering those curlers in their age category and there's only a two-year type of gap. I think for competitive, a Tier 2 and Tier 3 could go a long way in terms of the World Curling Tour. And maybe if we had some big tier two and tier three events and you got promoted through the ranking systems like people have mentioned before that could go a long way because you're not just benefiting those u25 curlers you're also benefiting those emerging 27 and early 30 year old teams that, that makes sense to me especially in the in whatever you want to call it tier two or whatever you we do have those events in canada but it would certainly be nice to have more of them and i'm looking at from behind your eyes um in modern day obviously it, it used to be that to get exposure so you could sell sponsorships so you could afford to travel you'd have to get your events on television well television is really really expensive to bring in the truck and all the people and everything it takes to put on a television production but streaming has become a lot more affordable do you see that as being potential for teams like yourself, Abby, and at, at the younger age, that maybe if these uh, Tier 2 events, we get them streamed, then uh, your sponsors get recognition, therefore you can get more in sponsorship, and of course be able to travel more at a young age to get better quicker? Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. I remember, I believe it was October or November, but there were some events in Alberta and Saskatchewan 
where they were streamed and the streaming quality was actually quite well. I believe that if these clubs or arenas hosting these events had cameras set up and things were streamed online, that could go a long way and you could see more teams that you like and maybe you get some more fans engaged because they're following someone from their hometown and now they can watch more closely. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the newly formed Northern Ontario Curling Association Youth Advisory Committee, which is what caught our attention. And you're a member of that committee, and this is new. What exactly do you see this committee doing moving forward here in the next few years with some of the things that we've already talked about and, and maybe others? What do you think you're able to do with that advisory committee? Yeah, so I think the Youth Advisory Committee formed in Northern Ontario is a great initiative. This committee is an opportunity to grow the sport in present and ensure that it has a healthy and sustainable future in the years to come. I believe that initiatives like this will help drive the necessary change in the province as well as Canada-wide. To my knowledge, Alberta has started something similar, and I encourage Curling Canada and other member associations to follow suit and give youth curlers a platform and formal capacity to share their perspective to grow the sport. Um, I also believe that it's a step in the right direction of rebranding our sport to appeal to a larger audience and recruit newcomers. If youth feel they have a say about the sport, they might feel more welcomed or inclined to stay. Young curlers within the province can now go to somebody with areas they've identified as opportunities or concern for the sport. I feel like before that, there was a barrier and things were more ambiguous or unknown for young curlers. If there was something they didn't like in the sport, who did they go to? A board member might have been slightly intimidating for somebody young to go to, but if there's a youth advisory committee that can now advocate for people, that opens up a lot of doors. Within our specific group, we've identified three areas that we feel is a good starting point. Obviously, you can dream on forever, but it's more realistic to start with some smaller sections. So for us, the areas we've identified are schools and recreational development, um, obviously some competitive agenda and making sure that competitive curlers have the opportunities to pursue the passion, and then the marketing and rebranding of the sport. So I think this committee can go a long way in attracting newcomers and new young curlers to the sport and remodeling some of the junior programs already offered and really appealing to those new crowds. So we talked a bit yesterday about uh, some of the initial things you would try to do. We talked a little bit about image of curling in Canada. And do you think the current image is right? And if not, what might be done to change it? I think that the image of curling is not really advertised. So it really varies person to person what they think about it. There's no formal image, but a lot of it dates back to, oh, that can't be competitive. It's just a drinking spiel or drinking sport, which is good for the fun crowd, but it doesn't really recruit those kids that maybe think they want to pursue hockey because they can get to the NHL or OHL or something. I feel like we need to start marketing our top players better. For instance, in Northern Ontario, we have a lot of successful young curlers especially, but if you go to a school, a lot of them won't know that. That is certainly something we've talked about before um, on this podcast is about, I guess, the idea of how our our governing bodies view the sport and that's they do promote their events pretty well but they tend to shy away from promoting the athlete and i think it's exactly the wrong strategy uh, we should be promoting them like crazy 
the problem is the associations, you know, run the, you know, their advertising uh, the way they did in 1972, and it hasn't changed. And I think that's a major problem. I think you're bang on that we need to promote our athletes more and events less. And I think the sport will go a long way at the grassroots level by having more and more people come into it. Um, not many teams now are, are going into the playdowns in various provinces compared to what they used to. I don't know if you know, Abby, but I, I ran a junior bond spiel in Edmonton for 17 years. And Mark Kennedy now runs it. And we always had 78 teams every year. That's as many as we could take. We had to cut it off at that. But a lot of the playdown totals um, are... are 10 teams in a whole province or Ontario last, uh, the last time was 18 teams. I think the province of Ontario, for goodness sake. So we're not getting enough kids involved. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on when we should start kids in school and how, like, you know, we do have that terrific program, rocks and rings, the ages of that. When do we do like learn to curls with like little rock programs? When can we start to actually get some almost high performance type thinking involved? I think that, the Rocks and Rings program is really awesome. To my understanding, kids start to lose interest in it after grade six, but I think targeting grades one to six in elementary schools could go a really long way. If maybe in September they had a Rocks and Rings session, and maybe in January they had one too, then at least they're aware of some general strategy principles and have an awareness for the game. I think this year is especially critical as an Olympic year because if anybody's going to watch curling, it'll be the Olympics. So I think there's a really important growth point to make sure people have an awareness of what curling is before that. So that way they might be more inclined to try it out after. So from that Rocks and Rings program, say that kids every year consistently from grades one to six were getting this consistent training, then you could go on to do a class field trip, have somebody organize a class field trip for these kids in grades six to eight and they get to actually try curling. Many high schools, and in our region especially, have teams if teachers advocate for them. So if kids are getting that experience in elementary school, then maybe they'll be more inclined to try out for those high school teams and grow that. And I think by nature, if you're playing in elementary school and by in high school, you might pursue competitive with some friends nearby. And I think that's where the sport kind of grows. When you talk about some of these problems, is this because you saw curling uh, maybe in Northern Ontario? That is the interest in curling there, is it going down or is it level or is it going up? Uh, the interest in curling has definitely been on a decline here in Northern Ontario, especially in youth, which is really concerning. I remember my first year of competitive, we had a regionals and I believe there were six to eight teams. And now you're seeing maybe three teams in a U18 regionals. And at the U21 provincial, you're only seeing three teams, which is really concerning. So why do you think it's dropped off like that? And, and what do you think is needed to be done to, to bring it back to get Gen Zs playing again? I think that when kids get involved with curling, there's a big barrier with baseball, hockey, and basketball. You kind of understand the general objective. With curling, there's all this strategy and when do I sweep? How do I know if the rock is heavy or light? How do I know where to ice when I'm in the house skipping? And I think that there's a challenge with getting those teams ready for that mental side of the game and understanding the strategy. And I think there's a big learning barrier there because if you have a few kids in 
one of those little rock or junior programs and then they want to make a team together they're like okay great who skips and how do we even do that so i think or i think something needs to be done to ensure that kids are well-rounded as throwers and understand the mental side of the game and the strategy behind it before they graduate from these programs and i think that there needs to be follow-up if you get into a school and you get these field trips running and rocks and rings going I think that you need to provide these kids information about how you enroll in club programs and how you get into the sport from there. Do you think there's maybe more variety needed? So things like doubles and triples being maybe more appropriately introduced at this younger age, which those are kind of games that everybody gets a chance to be the skip or play the different positions and and try everything out. Do you think that might help? Yeah, I definitely think that games like that could help because if you're playing mixed doubles or doubles for that matter, you only have to show up with one friend where if you're trying to make a team, it's a little intimidating to try and find four if you're just starting out. And I think with triples, it'll help better diversify some of the young athletes in these junior programs and Little Rocks programs and they'll get to play a little bit of everything. If you were to talk to a 15 or 16 year old and you were to introduce yourself say you're involved in curling if you were to ask them say would you like to curl would you like to try out curling what are they likely to say abby it would depend on the kid i think some would ask how do i even start or what if i don't know anybody i think it's really challenging because the sport kind of pushes you in a four-person direction whether that's league play or competitive style and I think that the sport could go a long way if there were some drop-in leagues where there's team scrambles weekly and maybe you only play four ends at a time or shorter games and then you have a dinner with your new team and it could really help you meet new people. Doesn't that seem simple though Abby to have when you go in your rocks and rings or um, you know you get good young curlers like, like yourself goes into a junior high school and you talk to the kids just making sure that they have the literature when you leave. The phone number, the person you need to phone, Stan at the club, that's who's in charge of the Little Rock program, the junior program. And don't worry, just come by yourself. We'll put you on teams, not a concern. Oh, the cost? It's either zero or five bucks to get the people involved. It's no problem. Let's just make sure we get them in the club. And you're right. It's really a funny thing that you'd think would be quite simple to get that literature into all the little ones' hands in all the schools. And and that way that intimidation isn't there. You're welcome to the club by yourself. Just need your mom and dad to drive you down and you'll be on the ice playing something, be it doubles, triples, four-person curling, or, or a little of all three. It's a great idea, and I don't know why it's taken so long because other sports do it. And uh, it's just a matter of us sort of catching up and, and uh, you know, your youth council could... Uh, could really help with this, I think. Yeah, that's definitely one thing we've mentioned quite a bit is making sure there's that follow-up with young curlers. If you get their attention in a gymnasium during a presentation, make sure they know how to get involved and make sure they have access to resources. But in our situation, Sudbury has many different clubs with many different programs and days where things are offered. So I don't think it's about supporting one club. I think it's about giving them an opportunity to support whichever club works best for them. I think we talked yesterday too, Abby, about uh, this kind of one-size-fits-all approach that we're taking, that it's pretty much all aimed at, at the competitive aspect. 
And to some degree, once you reach 18, 19, if you don't head down that route, you're kind of left standing out in the cold to some degree. And my philosophy has been that maybe around the age of 16, 17, that you kind of make a decision, you either go competitive or you go recreational. And then there's an opportunity probably for the next two, three years for you to change your mind on that if you make a decision one way or the other. What do you think of that whole concept overall? Yeah, I think that is a big factor. And I think that we lose a lot of players, especially in some of the provinces with heavy favorites in a competitive age category. I feel like if we expand some of the youth options, like maybe there's a U21 doubles that you can play in if you don't make it for teams, or maybe there's a tier two junior national. I think that could go a long way in reviving the hope and keeping people around a little longer. Something that I've been kind of bugging the associations for quite some time about, um, not that I bug people much, just a little bit, but, um, and that's to do with uh, the way the provincials are run. You walk into a provincial, it's, it's not about the fun, at least that's my opinion. They seem to be a, kind of dry and, and you're trying to get your champ, which is great. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the provincial being just an, an open event, an open bond spiel with prizes. Uh, not cash, but prizes, cool prizes. And and it doesn't matter the level of your curling, kind of like just big bond spiels. And there's A event, of course, the winner of A is your provincial champion. But there's B, there's C, there's D, there's E, there's F, G, depends on how many teams you get in. But make it really fun, a banquet. Um, if there's scholarships that are given out in that particular province, give them out at that banquet. Involve it in all kinds of things, kids curling. And... It'd be pretty neat. A, a, a second-year curler, they, they enter. They're certainly not trying to win the event because there's favorites. But but they might get to curl against somebody that's really, really good in the first game or two before they you know drop into D or E event. But then you've got fun involved, huge amount of teams. And the, and the young players that are coming up that are 12, 13, 14 that obviously aren't going to win this thing. But they'll stick, or stick around and watch the very best curlers in in northern ontario like yourself and what does that draw well just more interest it just draws more and more interest lots of people around there's nothing that draws sport better than a building full of people and understanding that out of the 50 teams that enter in northern ontario this event possibly only four or five could win it but that doesn't matter that's not the point the point is to get a ton of people around a ton of fun and grow your sport through an event that's really cool yeah, I completely agree. I think that fun events like that could go a really long way. I think that if you show the fun side of the sport, aside from the competitive, to those young curlers, you might be able to retain them to pick to continue recreational and not feel like they have to quit the sport completely if they don't choose competitive. Because I think there's a bit of a stigma there where people leave for good. And I think that would go a long way in helping fix it. Abby, what, what I see, and I wonder if it's part of the problem, is the youth curlers, most of them come, uh, which makes sense, of course, and obvious, uh, come from parents who are curlers. But I wonder if the problem is, I don't, do we need adults, Warren, Kevin, Abby, do we need the adults to get on board to tell the young kids curling's cool? Curling's a good thing to get involved. Because I feel up to now, you guys, that my generation or, you know, or younger aren't really promoting the sport. Soccer was uncool, Kev, for a long time until the adults came and said, you know what, soccer's cool, let's get our kids involved. 
Am I off track there, Kevin, uh, you know, or Abby about this? Go ahead, Kev. I don't think you're off track at all, Jimmy. It's a, it's a matter of, but it's how, how is the sport promoted? And actually, Abby brought that up earlier in our discussion here about making sure we promote the athletes. Some of your top athletes in Canada are curlers now. That never used to be the case. They would worry about playing hockey or whatever, or football or, or whatever, but it's, it's not quite like that now. Curling, because of the amount of travel at a young age, people get to go all over the world and you have the chance of being an Olympian and, and, you, and you, you play on the tour in all these countries. And that just wasn't the case 25, 30 years ago. But now it's exactly like that. So top athletes are actually, in my opinion, looking at curling uh, in, a, in a lot better light. We're just not really, with the infrastructure of our sport, inviting them in quite enough and we talk about it a lot how do we set the table so that these top athletes have enough competition to keep them interested you know that's like really uh busy boys and girls who are just all about athletics like they'll pick something like a volleyball because guess what there's a tournament every weekend someplace because they want to play that much curling you'd be lucky to find four junior events to play in well, that's not enough for for a for a, an athlete that's gung ho and ready to go every week. You, we just need to have more events for the junior age kids and more fun. And uh, I think uh, um, the sport would only grow like crazy. Yeah, so I think that ties into the point about sheltering kids within their age category. So as a U twenty one curler, I look at the calendar and I look at what I can play in. Can I play in mixed doubles? Can I play in university play? Can I play in mixed? What can I do to participate in things? But particularly when looking at the NOCA calendar and the Curling Canada calendar this year, there were some significant event conflicts. For example, the U21 Canadians, or sorry, the U20 Canadians in March conflicts with the mixed doubles national. So looking ahead, you can't choose to play in your mixed double playdown and your U20 playdown because the two nationals will conflict. And the U23 event held in, I believe it's March, conflicts with the U20 provincial. And further to that point, there is a U21 doubles for Ontario Winter Games this year but the qualifier conflicts with the women's and men's provincial. You're also seeing a conflict with OUAs, which is the university side of things, and the mixed doubles provincial. So if you're a Laurentian University student, and if you're on the Laurentian University team, and you're looking ahead and notice that the Nationals is in Sudbury, you can't miss the Canadians for university curling when you know you're gonna get the bye. So you have to play in that provincial to be a part of the team. So you can't pick mixed doubles. And living in Sudbury, you know that the doubles national is going to be in Sudbury. So how do you make that choice between playing a doubles national potentially in your hometown and playing your last year of U21 at the nationals if you qualify? Uh, Abby, I'll tell you this. Uh, we, you know, Before we let you go, uh, I do know this in doing this show with Kevin and uh, Warren that the only way some of this stuff gets done or looked at is you've got to create a dialogue. And you are the leader of that, for sure. Um, congratulations on everything you're doing for curling. And uh, boy, curling is lucky to have you. Abby, we really appreciate you coming on. And, and keep up all the great work. I know we're going to hear big things from you. And good luck, curling. 
Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Abby. Hey, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Good luck with yeah, with all you're trying to do. It's great to hear. Yeah, thanks, Abby, and uh, good luck with your curling ventures and everything you're working on. Thank you for having me. Uh, Kevin, look out Curling World. Watch out. Uh, if every curler who wants to get involved in it is like Abby. What an what a incredible young girl. She's only 20 and all the stuff she's doing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, hardworking and, and uh, such a good spokesperson for our sport and, and no doubt a really good ambassador in our, in our future. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's terrific to hear how, what the young people are thinking. You know, because the way that, say, somebody like myself or Warren would have, would have thought about the sport back when we were 20 is quite different than the way they look at things today. And it's just wonderful to hear from them. And uh, yeah, I certainly wish them all the very best in Northern Ontario. Warren, I'm sure when you were running curling, way back when it was like pulling teeth to try and get a comment or opinion out of Kevin Martin. And wasn't it? <laughs> no, Jimmy, I was just having a little drink of water and I almost, I almost had it come, come all over the microphone here. <laughs> uh, wasn't she great though, Warren? I, I bet you wish there's curlers like that all the time to build this. Well, sport. we need, we need more abbeys. And I think if I look, back over time with curling, the young voices have always been there. I mean, when I first started to speak up uh, about what was going on in this sport that I didn't like, I was probably 30. I wasn't 20. And when I was in, in the younger age, I saw it and I didn't like it, but it was kind of interesting. You didn't say much. It, to some degree, the old guard has kind of bullied the younger one over time in, in the sport of curling. And hopefully we got a point in time where a bunch of these young people are going to start to step up and say, we're the, we're the game here going forward. And this is what we think has to happen and push it hard enough that things start to change. Okay, boys. Well, that's a wrap. As they say in the business, um, we're reaching out to curling clubs all over the world and inviting you to contact us and set up a zoom call with uh, me, Kevin and uh, Warren. Uh, We've done this in the past and people love it. They last about an hour and you get to, jump on here and ask Kevin and Warren all sorts of stuff and they answer all your questions so get a hold of us also uh, we want to thank Sportsnet the producer of the show is uh, Warren Hansen we know him and Amal Delic uh, it's mixed and sound designed by Amal and of course our social media is handled by uh, Sportsnet Jonathan Brazel thank you very much for doing that uh, Andrew Holland is also involved in the editing and our Facebook page and our Facebook group is very active And we want to thank Rod Paulson from In-House Strategies for that. Take it easy, boys. Have a good week. And uh, let's not make any mistakes. And and don't cause any damage out there, Jimmy. Okay, we'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curling. See you later, Kevin. See you, Warren. Thanks, Jimmy. See you, Jim. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. 
Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now.